take care while listening to this podcast. It discusses criminal activity, including violence, abduction, and murder, sometimes involving children. Also, any opinions in these episodes are solely the opinions of the creators telling the story. Suspects mentioned in these tales are considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. And these are real stories about real people. The most important thing we can do to honor the victims and their loved ones is to play an active role in our criminal justice system, remain vigilant in understanding our surroundings, and support organizations that work to make sure that stories like these remain the exception and not the rule. In The Offshore Pirate, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, All life is just a progression toward, and then a recession from, one phrase, I love you. That sentiment captures the ebb and flow of the heart, with love being the center. The journey toward it and then away from it can feel like a roller coaster, or the slow movement of the tides on a beach. It might also explain why Valentine's Day is a quote holiday that is both equally loved and reviled, both anticipated and dreaded depending on where you are in your life. Artists have grappled with this notion since the first human felt the inspiration to paint on a cave wall to dance, or sing out in the night sky. Love both gained and lost has been the inspiration for most art, both the written word, the painted portrait, and the harmony of the soul. There is perhaps no place where the existence of love is more fervently expressed than through music, and, in recent years, no star has more consistently examined love in both its beautiful and beastly forms more completely than Taylor Swift. If, a year ago, you would have told me that I would not only like her music, but consider myself a Swifty, I would have called you crazy to your face. But, that's where we are. What a difference a year makes. So why, might you ask, is Taylor Swift being mentioned in a true crime podcast collaboration? Well, she's the inspiration for the stories we're telling in this miniseries. Each case was chosen based on the title of a Taylor Swift song. So, let's dive into this episode of the Taylor Swift-inspired true crime collaboration.
there, I'm LaDonna Humphrey. And I'm Amy Smith. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, a podcast that shines a light in some really dark places. And today, we will shine that light back on the Johnny Gosh case. We thought it was important to revisit this case as a follow-up to both our previous podcast and to the recent CNN story that was published on December 15th entitled, An Iowa Paperboy Disappeared 41 Years Ago, His Mother is Still in the Case. Let's just dive right in, Amy. This time, let's take some broader strokes surrounding all of the activity that was happening in Iowa in the late 80s. More specifically, let's look very closely at the time period between July 10th, 1986 and September 14th, 1989. This is when five newspaper carriers in the Des Moines, Iowa area reported being chased by strange men on their early morning delivery routes. Some of the earliest news coverage in the Johnny Gosh case included information pertaining to an unnamed mother whose 10-year-old son was, quote, bothered, unquote, by a man sometime before September 5th, 1982. So this it would have been going on for years, even though we're going to take, you know, a closer look at 86 through 89, I wanted to make sure that everybody understood that there was news coverage about this one particular mother whose child's name wasn't released because he was a minor that went back all the way to 1982. So this had been an ongoing problem in Iowa. Yeah, and we think this information is particularly important in light of the Gosh case and the belief that he was kidnapped for trafficking purposes because according to this woman, her son was delivering newspapers in the early morning near Johnny's home when a man drove up and began engaging him in conversation. Now, the nature of that conversation is not known, but the situation frightened the boy so much that he ran as fast as he could in order to get away from the strange man. To be honest, there are so few details about this situation that it really can't even be classified as an attempted abduction. He, he didn't have much detail to go on, but he just got that feeling and he got away from the guy as fast as he could. So because the situation has never been classified as an attempted abduction, it's never been considered in the Johnny Gosh case or in the case of another missing paper boy named Eugene Martin. Both Martin and Gosh were kidnapped the very first time they went out to deliver newspapers all by themselves. So are these cases connected? We may never know for sure. It's true, we may never know for sure. But what we do know is this. There were a series of incidents in the late 80s that seemed to be related and could very well point to a human trafficking ring that actively pursued young boys. Two of these incidents occurred in Indianola, which is a town that is less than 20 miles from Des Moines, Iowa. The incidents took place 10 months apart in September of 88 and July of 89. And in each situation, a male Des Moines register carrier between the ages of 10 and 13 was chased by a man driving a white van with a dark vinyl top. 
And while there is very little information about the first incident, the second incident bore enough similarities to the disappearances of Johnny and Eugene that local police requested the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation step in to see if maybe these situations could be related. Yeah, I'm glad they did because, I mean, you look at that, you know, side by side and it makes you take pause for sure. Oh, definitely. A 1989 article from the Iowa City Press Citizen is quoted as saying, two other registered carriers were chased last year by men who have never been identified. This article seems to indicate that the incidents that occurred in September in November of 1988 happened to boys that were all paper boys working for the Des Moines Register, which seems to be a pattern. Boys that were specifically being targeted for the most heinous of crimes, human trafficking. And if you are not fully convinced that all of these incidents were related, well then consider this, the blue car implicated in the Gosh case had Warren County license plates. Indianola, the city that you just mentioned that was just 20 miles from Des Moines, that saw that attempted kidnapping of two male newspaper carriers is located in Warren County. Coincidence? Maybe, but mm, that's pretty good. You know, and I, as I'm researching this case, and you know learning about johnny gosh and learning about all of these strange happenings i'm thinking what in the hell was going on in iowa in the 80s no doubt absolutely and don't become a paper boy exactly i mean it was just the most unsafe thing that you can do truly truly but you know as we look closely at this i think it's important for us to also discuss in detail the attempted abduction of a young boy named mike fackler and he was in the neighborhood of a city named clive and according to these reports that i read mike was walking past an apartment building on alice avenue at approximately 5 a.m. on November 1st of 88, when he says a white car pulled up in a nearby parking lot and a heavyset man wearing a white jogging suit got out of the vehicle and began to chase Mike. Terrified, Mike dropped his newspaper bag, and I imagine he did because it was heavy, and he sprinted to the safety of a neighbor's home. And from everything that I read, Mike was completely terrified. So keep that in mind. This this kid had been chased by some strange man and was terrified for his life. But yet, when the newspaper quoted a Clive detective named Jerry Miller, he said this, there was no indication in our interview that this boy was actually chased. Instead, it is believed that the boy was walking by the apartment building when the car pulled up into the first stall and the guy got out and jogged to the sign. The boy saw it, he stopped, and he panicked. Okay, I don't know about you, Amy, but this statement, it does not sit right with me at all. I mean, this feels like the beginning stages of some sort of cover-up or lazy police work. It just feels icky to me that he would yeah. say these things. 
Yeah, he just kind of backpedaled it like, oh, you know, he was just a kid. It was five o'clock in the morning. He just got himself spooked. Well, I think it's creepy, but before you could decide what you think, consider this. Remember the driver of the blue car in the gosh case that we talked about? Mm hmm. Okay, he had stopped and he had asked Johnny and the other newspaper carriers some questions and and part of that question was how do you get to 86th street okay so this is important everybody pay attention 86th street is also in clive now i know that sounds like a stretch there could be an 86th street anywhere but mike was also attacked in this neighborhood that is along 86th street oh gosh now yeah it might not mean anything or it might mean that this was an organized effort between pedophiles. You know, they were rehearsing what they said to pick up young boys and they were doing what most criminals do and they were building a story based on things that they know, places that they'd been, other things that had happened before and had been successful. Exactly. I really feel like we don't give enough credit to these pedophile creeps for being well organized. And guys, if you've listened to our other episode about John David Norman, I really right now would suggest that you do because he was so organized that he kept tens of thousands of index cards with young boys' names and descriptions and customer names and descriptions. Don't discount that. He was incredibly organized, yeah. I mean, he could have he could have ran Walmart. Yeah, these these perps, they were very very organized. So, I just I want to point that out. For sure. The mystery doesn't end there. Later, a 15-year-old boy named Jim, also a newspaper carrier, was ambushed by a man in a camouflage poncho while delivering papers half a mile from the home of Johnny Gosh. So there are definitely similarities between the Gosh abduction and the attempted abduction of Jim. Both victims were attacked on their early morning delivery route while working for the same paper, Des Moines Register, Jim's attempted abduction was three years and 10 months after Johnny's kidnapping. And even though Jim was attacked on a Thursday and Johnny on a Sunday, it was roughly the same time of day that both attacks occurred. And the boys were close in age. Johnny was almost 13 and Jim was 15. Most importantly, the two incidents happened within half a mile of each other, just a few blocks of each other. All kinds of red flags going off. This is a targeted attempt to procure young boys around the same age for something terrible. Absolutely. And it makes me wonder how many papers at that time were in that area. I mean, was there only one, like the Des Moines Register? Was there more than one paper or was that like the paper? If there's more than just one paper, then I would think, gosh, whoever's doing this, I would think might be connected to the paper. Well, I think we're gonna get there. I think that we're going to get there. So 
spoiler alert, people. <laughs> spoiler alert, but keep listening, keep listening, because I think we have some bombshells to uncover when it comes to the newspaper. But And the one thing that I want to say is I will never, ever let my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren ever be a paper delivery person. Ever. No. No, me either, but... Not a good thing. It's a dying industry now, so... It is, but clearly... <laughs> I know, it's terrible, but... You know, there is so much to unpack regarding this case. Everything from the mystery of Johnny Gosh's abduction to the attempted kidnappings of other newspaper boys to the people in question surrounding the case. And this is where we're going to hit on something that you just mentioned, Amy. And I'll go ahead and, and just say it. There was a man named Wilbur Milhouse. He was a Des Moines Register employee. And he was charged with six counts of sexual abuse. Wow. Oh, yes. And during his arrest, investigators uncovered a list of over 2,000 teenage boys that also included their photos, along with their contact information and other personal information that he claims he used in the recruiting process of the newspaper boys. I mean, what does this list remind you of, Amy? <laughs> yeah. So another person that's very organized. I wonder if he had his list on index cards. I know. It, it reminds me of John David Norman. I mean, this was a very organized pedophile. And additionally, there was another person of interest that worked at the paper. His name was Frank Sikora. And he worked as a newspaper carrier, an adult carrier, and he employed young boys to deliver newspapers, and he was arrested and charged, and he pled guilty to child molestation. So, you know, the Des Moines Register had not one, but two pedophiles working for them, at least two pedophiles working for them at the time of Johnny Gosh's employment at the paper and his abduction. And I'm telling you, this makes me take pause. Oh, absolutely. I believe that this had something to do with what happened to Johnny. I, you know, we know, I, I can't say that we know. We, we, we believe it was connected to human trafficking and I still believe that, but I believe it was a trafficking scheme that was originally started potentially through the Des Moines Register and that's a frightening thought oh yeah and it also is just it's intriguing that these sickos have a, a business plan I mean like they, they use the same type of organizational skills for their contact information and how they they structure their business per se um it just that just blows my mind uh, it's horrible it's all of those things combined and it it makes you wonder because there's so many cases that are unsolved from the late 70s 80s and through the early 90s and i think we didn't give enough credit to these groups like NAMBLA and these other one-off pedophile groups who were trafficking children. I just don't think that we realized then how organized they really were. 
Oh no. I mean, so organized and I mean, it's just frightening. You know, and there was so much going on around that time in Des Moines area in terms of pedophilia and trafficking. It's truly frightening. And as I went through my research for this particular episode, I came across a bone chilling news article with this title. Get this man named in pedophile network case pleads guilty. Oh, so if you, if you guys, yeah, if you'll uh, just give me a little leeway here, I, I'd like to read this article directly. So here it goes. Jerry Wentz, 47, one of five Des Moines men accused of acting as a pedophile network that passed boys around for sexual purposes, accepted a plea, a plea bargain less than a week before he was to go to trial on six counts of sexual abuse. Wentz of 6114 Rollins Avenue is the fourth man in the group to come to court. One of the men, Larry Hoffman, was declared mentally incompetent to stand trial. Former Des Moines elementary teacher Stephen Woodcock was convicted of two felony sex abuse charges. Another former teacher, David Graham, pled guilty to a reduced charge of conspiring to commit lascivious acts with a child. A fifth man, Patrick Baird, an insurance company clerk, is awaiting trial on four felony sex abuse charges. Wow, there were some definitely some bad things happening in and around Des Moines, Iowa, and it all points to child sexual abuse and trafficking. I think Noreen Gosh, Johnny's mom, I think she was on the right track from the very beginning. In another newspaper article that I came across, I found this, and it was a quote, said, Noreen Gosh, mother of missing Des Moines paperboy Johnny Gosh, said Millhouse's arrest may shed some light on the 1982 disappearance of her son. Gosh had argued for some time that her son's abductor was an employee of the newspaper who had access to carrier's routes. That's a lot to absorb, but I think that she's right. I think that yeah. whatever men were involved in this were probably, you know, working together through the newspaper, maybe some other businesses, and that's how they were tracking these boys. And what a great, what a great scam to do it because, you know, you hire them for genuine employment as a newspaper carrier. You can get to know them. You gain their trust. You know where they're going to be at all times. You can exploit them and you can handpick the ones that you want to, you know, sell off across the United States. That's horrible. That's just awful. You say it out loud and you look at the story in its entirety and it definitely does point to trafficking. Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. I just don't see it any other way. And I think in the beginning, Noreen, you know, Johnny's mom, she informed the police of a couple of odd occurrences just before the abduction, okay? She talks about in interviews and in um, this internet forum on Facebook that she is a part of, it's called the official Johnny Gosh group. 
she talks about how before his abduction they were receiving these strange early morning phone calls and she said they started about a month before Johnny disappeared and they stopped immediately after the abduction and I've always kind of wondered if you know they were making those early morning calls to see if somebody would pick up to see if the parents were awake if they were watching Johnny leave for his route you know really trying to see you know how involved the parents were who was home all of those things that may make sense to me but and and the fact that they stopped after the abduction is really telling i agree she also told police that that johnny had had a conversation with a police officer and supposedly he was a police officer we don't know that for sure, but that's what Johnny reported. And this conversation happened under the high school stadium bleachers during one of Johnny's brother's football games. And then just days after Johnny's disappearance, you know, Noreen is thinking about all these things and she is, you know, her mind's beginning to wonder what's really going on here? What happened to my son? And, and she reads the story that had been published, I think around September 24th of 82. And it was about these two Des Moines, Iowa girls who had been forced into prostitution in, in Omaha. This scared Noreen and she's putting two and two together with all these other things that had happened. She's a very smart woman. And so she goes to the West Des Moines, Iowa police department, police chief. And she says to him, Hey, I want you to investigate if there's any kind of link between these trafficked girls and Johnny's abduction. And the police chief, he refuses. No way. He says, he says, no, I'm not going to. So Noreen, you know, advocates for her son. And she did the only thing that she knew to do once the police told her no. She called a press conference. Good for her. She wanted to alert. I know. I'm like cheering for her. You know, she wanted to alert people to the story. One, you know, my son is missing. But two, there are these girls that were abducted and forced into prostitution. And, and we need to be outraged about that. And we need to make sure that some of these missing children aren't connected to those type of events. I mean, she was a pioneer truly in recognizing that these child abductions potentially were for sexually motivated crimes, such as trafficking, which I think is really, really critical and really amazing that she had the fortitude to do that in the, in the wake of her own loss of her son. Anyway, so she goes to the media, she has this press conference, and the result of that is her family starts receiving death threats. No way. Yeah, and they're told, hey, stop making waves. Mm. And you know, what's interesting here is why would they receive a death threat if they were not touching on or at least very close to the truth about Johnny's abduction? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, death threats, really? <laughs> Wow. I mean, that was very extreme. And I, I, I just think that there was a reason why. I think very early on, Noreen had this intuition about what potentially had happened to her son. I think you call it what you want. I call it divine intervention. I think she just kind of knew. Oh, yeah. She, she had that deep gut feeling and then she didn't get any help. So, you know, she had to do what a mom a mom would do you know so she's gonna have to find her own find her own help and it was at this point 
about a month after Johnny went missing that the Gosh family made the decision to hire a private investigator. The family was concerned that Johnny had been abducted and forced into sex slavery. That so in December of 1982, one of the first things that this private investigator did was attend a child auction in Houston, Texas to look for Johnny. Fortunately, Johnny was not among the children up for auction that day. But how sad that that's, that's the first place that the private investigator had to start. And that he knew that there was this auction that was auctioning off children. I mean, I just, I just can't even grasp that. It, it's just sickening to consider that these other children were up for sale. And, and where did they come from? Now this, my friends, is why this story is so very important. It's stories like this that drive us to expose the truth of sex trafficking. Child sex trafficking is real, and it happens every day in America. And it's been happening every day in America for decades. Johnny's case is plagued with all kinds of links to the seedy underworld of child trafficking. For example, there's a strange link that I'm going to share with you before we close out our story today. And in June of 1984, a man who went by the name Sam Soda contacted Noreen to arrange a meeting. He claimed to be a private investigator who wanted to donate his time and talents to the search for her missing son, Johnny. You know, and by this point, Noreen had lost faith in everyone, including the police department. And so to cover herself, you know, cover her bases, she brought a tape recorder to the meeting with Soda. And this is where this, the story, in my opinion, turns pretty sinister. Because during this meeting, Soda confided in Noreen that an informant had told him that another boy would be abducted the second week of August. Wow. And that he too would be a paper boy. And Noreen was in shock. I mean, just absolutely stunned and concerned. She took the information to the police. I mean, as anybody would do. Absolutely. As per the usual, the police dismissed Noreen and they said, we're not going to investigate this. This is ridiculous. And so, you know, Noreen is desperate. So she goes to the media and only one member of the media took Noreen serious and his name was Frank Santiago and Frank took the time to listen to Noreen's recording that she had with Soda okay stop right there LaDonna are you about to tell me that Sam Soda described the abduction of Eugene Martin before it happened that's exactly what I'm telling you Amy oh my gosh because on Sunday August 12th Eugene Martin was abducted while preparing to deliver his newspaper. Wow. Exactly as Sam Soda described. Then shortly after Eugene was kidnapped, the community received a sketch of the man who was linked to the blue Ford Fairmont, which was the car that was seen approaching Johnny Gosh before he was abducted. And when this sketch was compared to a photo of Sam Soda, it was shocking. Sam was a dead ringer for the composite sketch. And Amy, I'm going to show you this um, composite sketch right now. I'm 
I know you haven't seen it yet, so I wanted you to take a look and look at that compared to Sam Soda's photo. Okay. Whoa. Dang, LaDonna. Looking at this photo of Soda compared to that composite sketch? I am stunned. Mm, there's much more to this story than we know. Oh, there's definitely more to this story. And I think that we could probably do an entire episode on Sam Soda because there's a lot of belief that Sam was in touch with and knew this child trafficking ring. And I won't go down the Sam Soda rabbit hole, but I do think that we should touch on that some more. But, you know, according to my other research about this case, the Des Moines police were very aggressive in going after local pedophiles after Eugene Martin was kidnapped in 84. They realized that they had a problem. There was just two boys that were missing. You know, they were paper boys. They had all these other things that were happening. And so a mom comes to them with details of a abduction and they don't even do anything. So yeah, I'm sure they're scrambling. Absolutely. And because of this, they start searching homes, arrests were made, allegations of child sex trafficking rings that targeted young boys, you know, started cropping up. And then men started being arrested. And these men that were arrested all denied being part of this child sex trafficking ring. But interestingly enough, almost all of the men either pleaded guilty or were convicted of the crimes that they are charged with. So something was going on. Uh-huh. And as weird as the situation was with Sam Soda, his investigation did lead to the arrest of a man we talked about earlier, Frank Sikora. He was that adult Des Moines register carrier. Right, right. It also led to the arrest of another man and I presume that that was Wilbur Milhouse. And then Soda's work also led to the arrest of at least two to three more pedophiles that are not known publicly. That information was not you know, released. So all of that happened. And then eventually this led to the Des Moines police raiding three more homes in February of 1986. And that was the home of Steve Crawford. He was a school volunteer. That was the home also of Wilbur Milhouse that they raided. He was the guy that we, you know, we've mentioned from the Des Moines Register. Right. And then there was another man named Robert Robbins. So there were a lot of pedophiles in that area. And we've alluded to this many times. There was a lot going on in Iowa in terms of child sex trafficking that targeted young boys. And I believe that there is so much more yet to uncover. Oh, I agree, LaDonna. I think we've only scratched the surface. So stay tuned, friends. We are far from finished with this story. But until next week, stay safe and remember, keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash deep dark secrets. Sign up and you will receive deep dark secrets merchandise, extra episodes, and much more. For more information about our podcast, visit deepdarksecretspodcast.com.
Thanks for listening to this episode. Check out all the other tales in this limited series featuring Extinguished, Deep Dark Secrets, Murder and Mimosas, True Crime Connections, and of course, Santa may be a criminal. Be nice.